Good morning. How's everybody this morning? Yeah. Wow. There's a lot of you here. I wasn't here last week for the one service, so this is awesome. Isn't this great to be all together for the summer months? If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Revelation 3, verses 14 through 22. You can uh, scan the QR code. That'll take you right there as well. You can follow along that way. We're in this series called Seven, and today we're talking about the church of Laodicea. If you need a Bible, just slip a hand up. you see some mushrooms coming down the aisles. Um, you can borrow one this morning. Revelation's the last book in the Bible. You can turn there to chapter 3, starting in verse 14. We've looked at six of the seven churches addressed by Jesus in the book of Revelation, chapter two and three. Jesus introduced himself to each church differently. He kind of had this title and he praised them for their good things and he counseled them in their weaknesses and then he gave them a promise if they were to overcome. Seven different churches seven different letters, and I began this series by um, sharing with you that people view these letters differently. Some people view these letters as seven letters to seven churches, specifically to those churches, and that's what they were meant for. Others believe the seven churches demonstrate almost this progressive timeline in the life of the church. While yet others believe, as I do, that they were seven letters written to seven churches, but there are some major takeaways for all believers of all time. Today we'll be looking at the seventh letter, the letter to the church of Laodicea. For those who hold to the idea that the the seven churches represent a progressive timeline, uh, many would say that uh, if that's the case, then we are in the season of Laodicea. We're in the season of this last church. This church is probably the most familiar to most of us because you'll see a couple of the um, scripture passages or verses that, that you probably are somewhat familiar with. So number one, if you're following along, believe his promises, verse 14. To the angel of the church of Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. The city of Laodicea was mostly known for its banking industry. It was a wealthy city and for its medical establishments. In fact, they were famous for having a school of medicine and a special ointment famous to help cure eye defects. Laodicea was a city that really didn't stand out for any one reason. Their water supply was probably their main Uh, focus, the point of focus. There was a six mile uh, aqueduct which supplied Laodicea with water. The water came from one of two sources, either from a hot springs, and as it's made its way down to the city from the hot springs, it would cool and it would become lukewarm by the time it got there. Or from an area that was um, really, really cold water that was used for refreshment, and by the time it made its way down to the city, it was also lukewarm. For all of their wealth, they had a very poor water supply. Keep the water supply in mind because we're gonna come back to that. It's pretty significant in this passage. Jesus titles in in this passage, words of the amen, the faithful and true witness. The word amen acknowledges that which is sure and that which is valid. It indicates firmness and dependability, certainty and truth. It's a word we use in response to that which we agree with. At the end of our prayers, often we say amen in our response to a divine action. 
In the Gospels, when Jesus would say amen, the Jewish listeners understood Jesus to be saying that which I am about to say is true, it's reliable, and it's binding. So in the epistles and today, we use the word as the conclusion of a prayer. It is used like an exclamation point at the end of a sentence. It emphasizes what we just prayed. So we say, in Jesus' name, amen. In the name of Jesus, everything I just prayed, I am trusting in you. I believe that you are truth. I believe you to be reliable. And I believe that all of your promises and scriptures are binding. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. What is that telling us? Every promise God has made to you and to me in his word is yes. When it comes to God's promises, there are no maybes. There are no, let me think about it. Every promise is backed up by an amen, meaning it is reliable, it is true, it is binding. For instance, when we see in scripture, or we read in scripture when it says, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. We say, Amen to the words that are true, reliable, and binding. So Jesus presents himself as the faithful and true witness to this church. No matter how unfaithful we are, he is always faithful. He never gives up on us. Hear that, please. He never gives up on you. He never looks at us and says, forget it, what's the use? He never thinks to himself, if they don't want to know me and spend time with me and pray to me, then forget them. It's a faithfulness that we can depend on. It's a faithfulness that we can rest in. God is faithful, God is true, and the congregation responds with? Right. He's the ruler of God's creation is another title or name he uses. So Jesus is the source or the origin of all creation. Laodicea and Colossae were kind of close in proximity. So when you read the book of Colossians, in Colossians, Paul teaches us that Jesus is the creator of all things and that all things are created through him and in him. That's what Colossians teaches us. Now here in this letter to the church of Laodicea, Jesus himself claims to be the ruler of God's creation. Sometimes in our human nature, we don't like to be accountable to anyone or anybody. Uh, we don't like to be under authority. It's, it's in us. And I think what this is teaching us, like it or not, we are all accountable to him and we are under the authority of God. And this is just one of many reasons why people run from God, why they run from Jesus. Because as humans, we want to be in control. And we wanna be able to do whatever we wanna do, whenever we wanna do it, however we want to do it, and we don't wanna be accountable to anyone for our actions. As a believer in Christ, we're accountable for our actions. And we're under the authority of Jesus Christ who is the ruler of our lives. Accepting Christ is more than getting a free ticket into heaven, it's, a, it's submitting your life to his authority. Jesus' nickname is not Fandango right? 
Romans 14, 11 and 12 says this, as surely as I live, says the Lord, I want you to hear this, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So we, when I say we, I'm talking about believers here, will stand before Jesus and we will give an account of our character and our conduct, of our words and our actions, of our plans and our purposes, because Christ is the ruler of God's creation. Secondly, in verses 15 through 17, check your heart. This is what it says. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I've acquired wealth, and I don't need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. So he says in verse 15, you're neither cold nor hot. Most likely, uh, these words were referring to their lack of zeal as a church and as individuals. Many have understood these words to be saying spiritually cold or hot. I don't, I don't believe that that's what Christ was saying here because if he was addressing a spiritual temperature, then the scripture would be saying that Christ wishes that some would be spiritually cold, unsaved. The other reason I believe Christ was referring to the church's zeal and their usefulness rather than a personal spiritual temperature was that even though we use that sort of language today, we might say, hey, that person is on fire for Christ or that person is not on fire for Christ or they're hot or they're cold. To call somebody spiritually hot or cold in that day wouldn't have made any sense to them. What Jesus hates is what we find in verse 16. You are lukewarm. The sum of being neither of these is to be lukewarm. That is to say that as a church, they were complacent and satisfied as a church. To understand the language that Jesus opted to use for this church, we have to understand the geography of that area. So back to the water supply. So located just seven miles north of Laodicea, there was a famous hot springs which people would use for healing baths. So they would go there for the purpose of healing. So just six miles in the other direction, there was some springs that were icy cold and people would go there to uh, refresh themselves with the cold water. So the city was located right smack in between the middle of these two bodies of water that were considered to be, both were considered to be very useful. However, by the time, like I said earlier, the water reached the city of Laodicea, in both cases, it would arrive lukewarm. As it came over the cliffs, it lost its heat, therefore useless for healing and very sickening to drink. In the same way, the water traveling from the icy cold refreshing springs warmed up as it traveled and it was far less refreshing. So in order to understand Jesus' words to this church and to us, we need to understand the picture that would have come to their minds as they listened to the words. Jesus went on to say, because you are lukewarm, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. And this phrase literally means to vomit. 
As the water traveled from the hot springs towards Laodicea and as it lost its heat, it would spew lime down the cliff opposite side of the city. And this was the ongoing reminder to them as a church that when Jesus said, because you are lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. That's the visual picture that they would have in their mind. So Jesus detested their attitude and their lukewarmness, their compromise and their lackadaisical mindset. And literally what he was saying to them, it churns my stomach as one would be sick from drinking only lukewarm water. This church was becoming more and more ineffective. So think of the hot water that was used for healing baths. What Jesus was saying to the church is not about the body of water, but the church as a whole, that they were not a place where people were finding healing. Think of the cold body of water where people would go for refreshment. He's saying you no longer as a church are a church where people would come and find refreshment. And so I think about that as a church, but also us as individuals. Are we people, are we as a church where where people feel like they can come through our doors and this is a place where they can find healing in Christ? Are we as a church, are we as individuals, a place where people can come through our doors and they come up to us and they sense something refreshing about us because of our walk with Christ? What Jesus was saying to this church and to those individuals is you you are not doing that. You're ineffective. To be a Christian means to be useful to Christ. To be a Christ-centered church means to be useful to Christ. I have been reminded in in some reading um, that I'm doing how easy it is for us to be more concerned of others' spiritual condition and even the condition of the church than our own. As goes the individual, so goes the greater church. You say, In verse 17, I am rich, I've acquired wealth, and I don't need a thing. The church of Laodicea was unaware of its real condition. The church claimed or at least carried the attitude of, look at us, we have everything that we need. I've acquired wealth, I don't need a thing. The church was under the impression that they were self-sufficient and were not in need of anything, including spiritual growth. The more that we have, the less we need God. The mindset of the surrounding culture had crept into the way of the church and literally paralyzed their spiritual growth. Laodicea was a place of wealth and material possessions and self-sufficiency and the same mindset was making its way into the church and before long, their focus was no longer on growing spiritually and making disciples. So for the church of Laodicea, they carried an attitude of pride regarding their ministry and began measuring their effectiveness by human standards and not by spiritual standards. The church of Laodicea thought they were in pretty good shape. Like if they were to, if they were to evaluate themselves, they'd, yeah, we're, we're doing pretty good actually. Or they might say as an individual, I'm doing pretty good. And what we find in the remaining part of verse 17, however, was their real condition as reported to Jesus himself. He begins with, but you do not realize Look at the words Jesus used to describe their actual condition. So imagine that you're in this church and man, you just think everything's great and everything's wonderful. And Jesus says, but here's what you don't realize. 
And he uses these words, you're wretched and pitiful. Those two words go together. And these first descriptive words are linked together while the latter three kind of um, support the first two in greater detail. They're not as though they thought they're rich without need. To the contrary, they they are pitifully wretched and they are in great need. The word wretched uh, is used to describe a person's physical life when everything they own has been destroyed or plundered by war, as it's used here. Here the word is used to describe the church of Laodicea as a church who has actually been stripped naked. So as Jesus is looking at this church, like, oh, you as a church, you're you're walking around like, oh, we don't need anything, we're great, we're wealthy, Uh, you, you know. And Jesus is saying, no, actually you've been stripped naked. And you're... You're poor, you're blind, and you're naked in three descriptive words referring to their, this miserable condition that he's pointing out. Verse 18 and 19, be refined. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent was his message to them. Buy from me gold refined in the fire. What they needed as a church was a reality check. Their pride was out of control. They needed to be humbled and reminded of their real condition. So as a church, they needed to be tested by fire. They, they had no doubt become way too comfortable Nothing will wake a church up, or for that matter, an individual up more than being tested by fire. What does it mean to buy gold refined by fire? It means to be willing to pay the price as a believer. A church and all believers who follow Christ will face fire. Without the fire, there is no refining. Anyone who wishes to know Christ intimately has to face the fire. As in the church's case, so it is with the individual, the fire, it refines and it purifies. But what do we do often? We run from the fire. We run from the trials. We would much rather be a spiritual Tarzan swinging from mountaintop experience to mountaintop experience on spiritual highs. Spiritual growth and refinement come from our time, friends, in the fire. And God allows us and causes us at times to go through the fire. Sometimes we even have to stay in the middle of the fire for a time. And the middle of the fire we know is to be the hottest. Every trial we face is necessary for God's reflection to become more and more clear in our lives. Every fire we face as a church will allow Christ to be more and more radiant in this place. Are you willing as an individual? Are you willing as a family? Are we willing as a church to walk through the refining fire knowing that Christ's reflection will become more and more obvious? If we really want Christ and are really desiring to know him deeply, there is no other way. We must go through the pain of being refined. 
For the overcomer, second part of verse 18, and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. God disciplines those he loves and godly sorrow leads to repentance. Listen for the knock, verse 20 and 21. Here I am, he says. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The promise is in verse 20. Here I am. There's a shift here from the broader group to individuals. He says, I stand at the door and knock. Jesus says, I stand. He wants the attention of an individual. I knock. Hmm. How does God knock? He knocks through trials. Are you in a trial right now? He knocks through his word as we read and study it. He knocks through the Holy Spirit. He knocks through other people. What is it that he wants? So he's talking about this. I'm standing at the door. I'm standing at the door of your heart right now. So I want you to imagine this. And he's knocking. What is it he wants? Many people have believed this verse to be in reference to salvation, and it's not. There's plenty of other scripture that point to Jesus drawing us unto himself to salvation. He's talking to the church here. He's talking to believers. And he says, I stand at the door of your heart right now, and I'm knocking. And we say, wait a minute. We've already received Christ as a believer. We're already indwelled with the Holy Spirit. Why in the world is he knocking? Because he wants fellowship with you and with me. A couple weeks ago, I shared with you that I do not believe a person can lose their salvation. So once you're saved, you're always saved. Those are phrases that we use. Um, eternal security, perseverance of the saints, those kinds of things. The, those are phrases that we use. So once you're in Christ, you're in Christ. You're a child of his, you're always a child of his, right? But here's what can happen for you as a believer and for me as a believer. We can be out of fellowship with God. It would be like having a son or a daughter as a father and, and they drift away and they never cease being my son or daughter, but we could be out of fellowship for one reason or another. That's what he's saying to the church of Laodicea. That's what he's saying to you. That's what he's saying to me. That's what he's saying to Bethel Church. When you're out of fellowship, when your fellowship is broken with Christ, when you're not abiding in him, when you're not walking with him, when you're not looking to him, when you're not seeking him, those things, he's saying, he's getting our attention. He's saying, he's knocking. Is he knocking on your door right now?
Because God desires fellowship with you, sweet fellowship with you. He desires for us to be in an abiding relationship. But let's not miss what's necessary for that fellowship. This verse says, if anyone hears my voice, the voice of the knock, and opens the door, what does that tell you? Jesus is not going to plow down the door when you're out of fellowship with him and force you to be in fellowship with him. It's an invitation for us to open the door and to renew the fellowship that's been broken. And so while Christ constantly strives to get our attention in hopes of having fellowship with us, we have to open the door. And when we open the door and allow Christ to fellowship with us, our heart is transformed, listen to this, from a trophy room when it's all about us to a throne room when it's all about him. So, we have to identify the knock. What is it in your life right now that sounds like Christ's knock on the door of your heart? Maybe it's a trial or things he has shown you in his word. It's that the Holy Spirit speaking to you right now. Maybe it's another person in your life being used by God to get your attention. Whatever it might be, first we have to hear the knock. We have to quiet ourselves enough from the busyness of the world and from this attitude of I don't need anything and hear the knock. And then secondly, it says we have to respond to the knock. More than likely, the knocking will come in the valley. Regardless, open the door and say to Christ, you have my attention and I desire fellowship with you and I desire teaching from you. I desire your reflection to be seen in my life, whether I'm at work, whether I'm at school, whether I'm at home, whether I'm at church. Come and make my heart once again a throne room. Here's the one thing. It's the same verse in a different translation from the NLT. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and you open the door, look at this promise, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Fellowship again. Father, thank you for um, these seven churches and thank you for the message uh, to them, the original uh, people who, churches who receive these letters, but also for us as believers of all time, man, there's some powerful truths of what you're trying to stir in us and awaken in us. Um, it's amazing how we sometimes find ourselves in the same place from the time when these letters were written. God, I believe that there are many of us potentially here this morning that are not in fellowship with you. It could be that we're even in a trial and we're trying to figure it out. We're trying to make sense of it. We're trying to look in every direction except you. And, and, and yet you're standing there and you're knocking on our door and you're just saying, would you just open the door? Would you just look to me? Would you turn to me? Would you abide in me? God, maybe this would be the week when we would turn back to your word with a deep hunger and thirst because it's been a long time. 
Maybe this would be the week that we would fall on our knees in prayer before your throne because it's been far too long. Maybe this would be the week when we would look at ourselves in the mirror, the mirror of your word and say, I've got so many areas of my life that I need to grow in. Maybe this is the week when we say to you, I've been running. And we answer the door. And we find ourselves in amazing fellowship with you again. Which all points back to your faithfulness. The great amen.